We can be dream makers, nurturing, compassionate. Nosotros podemos ser más unidos. We can be anything. I'm Grant Oliphant. This is We Can Be. So Obama's talking about all of this with the global warming and that and a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. I mean, it's a money-making industry, okay? It's a hoax. We will cancel the job-killing restrictions on the production of American energy. And we are going to end the EPA intrusion into your lives. Days into his presidency, Donald Trump is sending chills down the spines of environmentalists and some EPA employees. Today our guest is Mustafa Santiago Ali, and it is no understatement to say that he is a superstar in the environmental justice world. He served in the Environmental Protection Agency for over two decades and was a founding member of the Office of Environmental Justice, where he most recently served as Senior Advisor for Environmental Justice and Community Revitalization. He is now a Senior Vice President with the Hip Hop Caucus, leading their climate, environmental justice, and community revitalization programs with positivity, style, and focused energy. Mustafa Ali, I want to thank you for being with us today. It's a privilege to get to talk with you. I'm a fan of of your work, and I'm a fan of your integrity and what you've done. And I actually want to start off with the decision that probably most of us know you for best, which is the rather high-profile decision to leave the EPA after a career of working in government to try and protect the environment on behalf of the American people. What motivated that decision? It was uh, a number of different things. Um, A lot of prayer, consultation with my parents and mentors. But, you know, the substance of it was uh, actually taking a look at some of the things that were being proposed by the new Trump administration. With the budgets that they were talking about, offices they were talking about eliminating, I knew that those were critical to the safety net of protection in the communities that I had served for a couple of decades. So after all of the communities that I had worked with all of those years uh, and seeing their dedication, um, their commitment to trying to make real change happen, I knew that I had to, to stand up respectfully and to share with the new administrator how important environmental justice was, how important a number of different programs inside the agency was to helping communities to be in a better and safer place. So I submitted my resignation letter. In that, I highlighted those programs. I highlighted also some of the impacts that are still happening across our country. But I also shared with the administrator at that time some of the examples of how communities through collaborative partnerships have been able to make real change happen because I always want to leave people with the light at the end of the tunnel. If we do things right, these are the things that can happen and has happened. And also when the administrator was going through his Senate confirmation hearing, he had shared that he didn't know a whole lot about environmental Mm -hmm. justice. So I thought I would take it as an educational moment. I just have to say that I think the manner in which you did that was a master class in how to leave in a classy and principled fashion. You were very clear about why you were leaving. You didn't soft pedal any of it, but you did it in a way that you hoped would be heard. Was it heard? Uh, You know, that's a question that is often asked. So uh, I'll answer that in two different ways. So a reporter sat down with me once and told me that over a million people had read the letter. So it was heard in the sense that it helped to highlight for the country environmental justice. And hopefully folks took a deeper look and started to ask themselves, in my work, in my communities, am I doing all that I can to help to 
move our most vulnerable communities to a better place. In relationship to the administrator and to um, the president, I think that they definitely eventually took a peek at it, probably after there was, you know, this uh, attention that was garnered. And I never intended for there to be that level of attention. I just wanted to help share with them that you've got a very, very special program here. You've got a very, very special issue that runs not only through the Environmental Protection Agency, but 17 other agencies and departments. And it can help you in your new administration to actually do something that would benefit communities. You, um, I think, in the process of leaving or, or subsequently quoted Maya Angelou about her notion that when somebody shows you who they are, believe them, mm-hmm. which I think is a really powerful concept. What did they show you in those early months that persuaded you as to what they are? When folks were running for office in relationship to what was happening in Michigan, especially Flint, Michigan, you know, they had talked about helping to make real change happen. But yet many of their actions that they were proposing would have placed that community in greater harm, especially when you start talking about, well, we probably don't need this program anymore. We probably don't need this grant program anymore. And I knew that there were over a thousand other locations across our country that had higher levels of lead even than Flint does. That makes me pretty clear that these communities, for whatever reason, are not high on your priority list um, and that you're not placing a huge amount of value in those communities. I went through and saw some of the things that they were proposing around enforcement. Now, uh, enforcement is extremely important, especially to frontline communities who are located where many of the polluting facilities are. And if you're not going to be serious about enforcement, then that leads me also to believe that folks are going to unfortunately be exposed to greater levels of toxins and get sick. In your job description, you have (laughs) just a couple of things that are the core things, and it's protecting human health and the environment. And by the actions that they're moving forward on, they are failing. I believe we're in the process of putting together one of the all-time great cabinets that has ever been assembled in our nation's history. Though so far, many of his choices for key roles have come with their fair share of controversy. The latest, Trump's choice of Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt to lead the Environmental Protection Agency. He's picking someone to lead the EPA who's been suing the agency over its clean power plant. Just just to get to the nitty-gritty, do you believe that it's been proven that CO2 is the primary control knob for climate? Do you believe that? No, I... No, I think that, that measuring with precision uh, human activity on the climate is something very challenging to do, and there's trem- tremendous disagreement about the, the degree of impact. Pruitt denies the science of climate change and has routinely chosen the big oil and coal industry over the well-being of his constituents. Today we stand against an administration that places profits over people and tells us that science isn't real, that rolls back regulations that for decades has protected and giving people a fighting chance for clean air, clean water, and clean land. Today we hold our public officials accountable. Today we stand for justice and make our collective voices heard. Today we stand up and we march. I think for a lot of folks who listen to this podcast, a lot of people in the nonprofit community or in and around the social sector are wrestling with what moral courage looks like at a moment like this. Was it hard for you to leave? It was very hard in the sense that I grew up in the agency as a student doing an internship. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of people who had helped raise me, mentor me, both inside the agency and in the grassroots movement. 
And just knowing that when the Environmental Protection Agency is focused, it can do an incredible amount of good. But I also know that when it is not focused in that direction, it can also destabilize lots of different types of communities who need it. There is a reason why it is in place. I worked for a number of administrations, both Republican and Democrat. Mm. I know the good that it can do. I knew the need that still exists and I had to wrestle with the fact, can I do more on the outside or can I do more on the inside? Some folks came to me and they said, Mustafa, why don't you just like move off to the side, keep your head down for a few years and just, you know, just kind of, you know, go with the flow. And I thought about all those communities that are out there who seven days a week, 24 hours a day are dealing with these impacts and they don't have time for folks to put their head down. They need people who are pushing and it's funny, I would pray, and I'd said, Lord, if this happens, then I'll leave. And something would happen, and then I said, well, maybe, Lord, you just didn't hear what I was saying. <laughs> I said, if this happens, then I'll leave. And then I remember, you know, talking with my mom and some others, and, and, and it went that, well, if you're waiting for a burning bush, it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> I think a lot of us can identify with that process of negotiating with God. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> so were, were you surprised when the EPA, the administration, allowed its recent report on environmental racism, admitting that environmental racism is real, to be released? I was surprised. I'm glad that they did because it helps to sort of build upon a body of evidence that has been mounting now for decades. I'm not sure if it, if it just kind of slid under the radar and then they were like, wow, how did this get out type thing? Which, you know, they used to keep a pretty tight rein. But what it does is it creates a sort of a precarious situation for them. If you know, if the facts are right there in front of you, let's take climate change. We can have a conversation about that a little bit later. These are the things that you can touch and feel and see that are happening inside of these communities. So now, when you begin to set priorities, when you begin to move on a set of actions or lack thereof, then that sends a message about your true intentions for those that we label our most vulnerable communities. And uh, it doesn't paint a pretty picture for the current administration when they know without a doubt that these impacts are happening. And when they begin to deconstruct and destabilize, then that says something about your humanity, your morality, and how you view your job. Yes, it does. I'd like to ask you to share with, with us your definition of environmental justice, mm -hmm. because I think this is a term we use a lot in, in our field, but it's not accessible for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about this concept of you know, these communities that are being hit hard by pollution and mm -hmm. other environmental problems, what does the notion of environmental justice mean? Well, you know, for a lot of folks, it's the disproportionate impact that's happening in communities of color and low-income communities. So, you know, that is a, a governmental way of talking about it. I like to use examples to help people to really get a, a flavor for what's going on. So, you know, for many communities, it is the elevated asthma levels that we now see. But not just the asthma itself, but also how does that play out with you being able to get your child to the doctor? Do you have insurance or are you underinsured? If you have to make a decision between being able to take your child to the doctor and going to work because you're working in, in a situation where maybe you don't have vacation days or medical days, but you still have to make those decisions, all that is wrapped up. Or you can look at situations like the Elk River in West Virginia 
um, where there are not a whole lot of folks of color who are there, but we had the huge chemical spill that happened a couple of years ago. And then all of the things, dynamics that go into being low income and you can't have fresh water coming out of your tap that one, you probably no longer trust, but now you got to go to bottled water and you may not have the money to be able to do that, but yet you have to have water to live. So, you know, that's another way of looking at it or standing rock and we can bring culture into our conversation um, and how you have the water protectors who are there, not only just trying to protect the water from those pipelines, which people told us would never leak and now they've leaked a number of times, but also honoring that culture that is focused on not just their own community, but also you know, the entire country and actually the entire world. Well, that's the piece that I think I wanted to ask about next, because uh, unfortunately in the broken cultural environment that we're operating in right now and the broken political environment that mm -hmm. we're operating in right now, there are plenty of people in the country who hear a concept like you've just explained and say, well, that's not for me. It doesn't matter mm -hmm. to me. It doesn't matter to my community. Mm -hmm. What are they getting wrong? Well, actually, because these issues touch all of our communities and they touch them in many different ways. You know, sometimes folks only talk about environmental justice in the relationship to the impacts of folks of color. And yes, that is huge. And we have those disproportionate impacts. But there are also a number of low income and working class white families who are also dealing with whether we're here, you know, in Pennsylvania, dealing with the fracking issues um, and the impacts to water quality and some of the other things that that happened in that space. I think that what you have to do is actually find that connection for folks about what's going on. You know, we've recently had this big conversation around healthcare. So we know that when folks are exposed to these toxins, then they're going to have to utilize the emergency room, uh, other types of medical facilities. And in many instances, our tax dollars are going to have to go to help to sort of buffer that and strengthen that. So even if you have not been impacted personally, by pollution, by toxins, there still is a cost, a societal cost that's a part of that. So really, this is about all of us. It really is. If you look at lead, let's just talk about lead real quickly. When young children are exposed to lead, we know that it leads to neurological disorders. And we know that when you have that situation that's going on, it makes it difficult to learn. And when you can't learn in this competitive environment that we all now live in, then you're not going to probably be able to get a job. And if you can't get a job, then you may make some other decisions. So we know that if we get in front of this problem, we have over a million kids in our country who unfortunately have been exposed to lead pollution. If we can get in front of it, we can save literally billions of dollars. There's no way of escaping from uh, the cost that's associated with some of these impacts that are happening. And we can either take care of it now, or as we know, everything ends up costing more down the road. So we can invest early on in stopping lead as an issue, or we can deal with the costs that are associated with folks who can't compete in our current sort of structure. And there are a number of costs that are associated with that. So we're, we're meeting today. You're about to speak to Pittsburgh's P4 conference, which stands for Planet, People, Place, and Performance. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an attempt to bring a balanced perspective to how we make decisions about everything from economic development to community development. You are the perfect person to help kick off this conference because of what you've done. And part of that has been what you've done after the EPA, mm -hmm. because you've gone to an organization called the Hip Hop Caucus, mm -hmm. which, by the way, wins my award for coolest name of an organization that I've heard <laughs> I appreciate yet. appreciate that. 
But tell us about the Hip Hop Caucus yeah. and what you're doing and why you went there. Yeah, I mean, folks always ask me, they're like, Hip Hop Caucus, what, what, what's going on there? You know, you should be at Sierra Club or NRDC, all great organizations. So the Hip Hop Caucus, uh, founded by Reverend Yearwood, actually came out of four different organizations that merged a number of years ago. And we focus on culture, communities, policy, uh, and the power that exists in, in hip hop. And uh, we have some incredible programs that are going on. And the reason I went there, and all those years I was doing work, I was looking at what actually works, what actually drives, how, what are the leverage points that are necessary for communities to not only address these impacts that are happening in their community, but also to be able to move forward in a positive direction. So one of them, as many of us know, is the Respect My Vote campaign, which deals with the civic process. Mm-hmm. And the caucus has uh, registered over 600,000 folks to participate in our democracy, um, which is huge because in many instances, we focus on those who sometimes are forgotten or that people don't think want to be a part of the process. I'll say it that way. We have artists and entertainers who share uh, why voting is important, the power that exists in there. So one of our first spokespersons was T.I., T.I. is a huge, huge rapper. He got engaged in one of our first campaigns and uh, voted for the first time. You have incredible folks like Common, uh, Neo, L. Varner, Antonique Smith. I mean, I can go down the list of individuals who are part of it. And in 2014, we put the home album together, Heal Our Mother Earth. Water moves, new world order rules. Through hurricanes, the pain is made audible. Hearing them utilize this this beautiful gift that God gave them to connect with folks, to talk about climate issues, uh, environmental justice issues, civil rights issues, it reaches a group of people whom you know may not normally have seen a connection in those spaces. And when you see someone who looks like you comes from where you come from and they're sharing this information, it pulls you in. And in many instances, it's other folks also who you know may not come from the same communities but also just feel that kindred spirit because of music and art and culture. Why do art and culture matter in this context? So you're talking about social change and you're talking about environmental change yeah. and you're talking about getting people to take seriously their participation in democracy. What's art got to do with it? Oh, my goodness. I mean, art through our history as humans has been uh, the storyteller, has been the, the beacon on the hill, if you will. If you look at all of our movements, there was music that was engaged with it, whether through instruments or through the human voice. If you look at the civil rights movement. Many people focus on Dr. King, and rightly so, uh, and many of the other luminaries that were in that space. But it was the music um, that held those marches and those rallies together. those old tapes, you will hear people singing as the dogs and the hoses and the various things were coming toward them because it was unifying, but it was also uplifting. Music and art and culture 
it is what gives us soul. Uh, it is what allows us to connect um, in great distances or in intimacy. It is one of those tools that we have that gives us the ability to make change happen without even knowing change is happening. I'm, I'm thinking about the linkages that you make in your work, and certainly to art and culture as a transformational agent is one, but you also make connections between concepts that our society and policymakers tend to think of as separate and distinct as mm -hmm. well. The programs that you help lead, you're, you focus on community revitalization and mm -hmm. the environment, mm -hmm. and a lot of people don't see those as connected. You know, in Pittsburgh's story, we are suddenly experiencing a shift of 40 years of managing decline to suddenly managing momentum, and it brings a whole host of new challenges with it. A lot of America is still wrestling with decline. There are communities in rural America, there are communities in urban America that really don't know how to turn themselves around. Why does environment matter to them? Well, I think it depends on how you define environment for folks also. Sometimes we have this strict way of looking at it Originally, the conservation movement was, you know, icebergs and, you know, polar bears and things that are important. But for Mrs. Ramirez or Mr. Johnson, there may not be that same connection that happens in that space. So for me and coming out of the environmental justice movement, all of the leaders that I ever was mentored by or work with always took a holistic approach to these issues. So we understand that environmental justice is dealing with housing justice issues, it's dealing with transportation issues, it's dealing with public health issues, um, but it's also dealing with job creation. A and sometimes we miss that. But the key point, and that so many of our contemporaries sometimes miss, is that it is about people. So people should be the driver in this process. People should be the ones that are framing out the direction they're trying to go in partnership with others. But in many, many instances, we see the voice of communities as an afterthought. And, you know, something's created and then we'll pull mm -hmm. them into the process and say, well, what do you think about this? Instead of saying, hey, why don't we get together at the beginning and frame this out together in a way that helps you to be able to move forward in a positive direction. When we don't do that, what you seem to find happen more often than not is gentrification. Well, and I think this is an area that not only cities, but policymakers and foundations for that matter mm -hmm. get wrong over and over and over again. Thinking about the voice of communities at the end rather than at the beginning mm -hmm. and designing accordingly based on what we hear. You spent a lot of years with EPA, and most people think of EPA unfairly as a Washington agency, mm -hmm. when in fact it's all over the country. Is there a community that has inspired you in terms of its ability to get this right, where the people have been a force to be reckoned with and made their voices be heard? Yeah, there are a number of, of examples, and, and one of the disservices that we do is that we don't highlight them enough so that folks know how real change can happen. So I often talk about the Regenesis Project in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Incredible example of how real change can happen. And it looks like many, many communities across America. It's a community that had a number of different issues going on. So on the environmental side, they had um, brownfields and Superfund sites. Those are some of the more toxic sites across our country that need to be cleaned up. They also had chemical facility that was in their community. They had shotgun housing. For those who are from the South, they'll know what that means. You, you kind of open the front door, you can see out the back door, no energy efficiency, any of those types of things. They had food desert issues. So seniors had to travel about a half an hour to be able to get to a supermarket to get to fresh food. 
They had lack of access to health care. They had lack of access to jobs. They had a small amount of crime. And then they got a $20,000 environmental justice small grant. They took that $20,000 environmental justice small grant and leveraged it almost $300 million in changes. Well, now they have 500 new green homes. So before, folks were paying three dollars to $400 a month for their electricity costs. With the new green homes, we've now got that down to $67 a month. We also got a new supermarket in, which has now become an anchor and other businesses are now moving into that space as well. We got a 50,000 square foot new green community center where seniors and children can come and learn and culture can be honored in that space. And we have worker training programs that have been a part of this. So the community residents are the ones who went through the worker training programs and they are the ones who rebuilt this community. So in those brownfield and Superfund sites that are now been cleaned up, there's a 35-acre solar farm that's going in that will now zero out the cost of electricity and the rebate from that will now go back to the community. And the energy for this all came from the people. It came from the community. There are a number of examples around the country of how this can be done if we want to value the voices and innovation of communities. Two core brilliant concepts in what you've just said about the power of listening and the importance of listening. and. And then also the way we're all connected, mm -hmm. which takes us back to the idea we discussed earlier about why everybody should care about these issues and not just a few. I do want to ask you quickly before we run out of time, the mm -hmm. name of this program is We Can Be. Yes. And I'd just like to know what you think we can be at this moment in our history. We can be the change that is necessary and that is needed. We have the power to, to do the things that are necessary to make sure that not only you know, our planet is safe, but that the voices, uh, innovation, expertise of all of our citizens and residents has a place at the table and that it's honored and valued. We can be the change. I want you all to think about something. Dr. King once said that we come to these shores on different ships, but we're all in the same boat now. I want you to think about the time that we're living in and the situations that we have to deal with. And as we're going to move forward on building equitable and resilient and new cities, how important it's going to be for us to come together. But we also have to come together in honoring the voices of our most vulnerable communities, communities of color, low-income communities, and indigenous populations. Mustafa knows that together we do indeed have power. And he has worked for two decades to ensure that the voices of the environmental movement are heard. And with it, the voices of people too often ignored. He challenges us to work together to make certain that this new future is inclusive of all of us. And that we all have access to clean air and water. It is an enormous task and current political winds will not make it easy. But with Mustafa as a guide for how to stand up against those who put profit before our health and that of our environment, we will push forward so that true environmental equity can become a reality. <laughs>